I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Please welcome, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Bill Reinch and Scott Miller, and Swedish Ambassador Karen Olofstöter, for a live taping of the Trade Guys podcast. The Trade Guys and Ambassador Olofstöter will discuss COVID-19, China's rise, and the election's impact on bilateral and global trade. Thanks for being with us again, Ambassador. It's a great pleasure to be at the House of Sweden. It's a wonderful facility. You know, with COVID, this is our, our day out. So it's, it's kind of an unusual break mm-hmm. when we're delighted to be here in person and having this conversation. Maybe we kick it off and talk about politics. I mean, that's on everybody's mind. The uh, well, I guess you could call it a debate. The TV guide listed it as a debate, but that happened earlier this we week. You can't call it on this kind of forum what the commentators are calling it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Obviously, the race is very tight, as it usually is at this point in the American presidential election. I think as a topic, it's a good place to start. And the campaigns are, in some ways, talking about similar things and themes about America first and uh, make it in America. So, Bill, you've, you've looked at this very closely from the standpoint of what candidates have been saying all along. Yeah, elections don't bring out the best in anybody, really. Right. And we saw that Tuesday night. And trade is an issue that's easy to oversimplify. If you look at polling data in this country, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. Most Americans are pro-trade. Uh, and they say they're pro-trade, 70% or so. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them other questions, like does trade cost jobs, mm-hmm. they'll say yes. Is uh, our companies moving offshore good? And they'll say no. So they seem to be able to hold opinions that are not entirely the same simultaneously. Elections tend to play on the downside. The president, in particular, has made trade a signature issue for him. It usually has not been a big issue in our election. If you do other kinds of poll data, and don't ask people what they think about trade, but ask them what's important, Mm -hmm. trade is seven out of eight. Or actually, this year, it's eight out of eight. Climate change has moved up a notch. What they really say is important are the economy, healthcare, and terrorism, which have consistently been at the top three of things that Americans are worried about for more than 10 years. So trade is hovering down at the bottom. The president has made it the big deal. He has a policy of victimization, is the best way to put it. The United States has been taken advantage of by the evil foreigners. We'll exclude Sweden from that category uh, for today's purposes. But we've been taken advantage of by the foreigners. It's their fault for cheating and breaking the rules. And it's all of his predecessors' fault for not doing anything about it. And his message to the American people in 2016 was, I'm going to fix it. So the campaign comes around to 2020, what does he say? I'm great, I'm fixing it. And his opponent is saying, no, you're not. You know, the trade deficit is bigger. It's gone up, this year may be an exception because of COVID, but every year has been bigger than it was in 2016, that you haven't solved any of the problems you're talking about. You don't have a plan. You have scattershot tariffs. And you haven't built coalitions. You haven't worked together, particularly with Europe, to address common problems like China. And... They'll continue to beat each other over the head on that. What I think will happen is that the trade debate is going to become fairly quickly a debate about China. And both candidates are accusing the other of being soft on China. American public opinion has turned very negative uh, about China uh, over the last several years. 
I think largely because of Chinese policies. It's not because of, of Trump. But both candidates say the other is, is failing to address the problem properly. Uh, and they'll spend the campaign attacking each other. Yes. Now, uh, despite all the sound and fury, the American market is still relatively open to trade and a, rel- a great place to invest. So if you look, despite the four years of President Trump and some selective tariffs on China and on aluminum and steel and a lot of mischief in general, which has kept us in business, thankfully. But if you look overall, the U.S. MFN bound tariff is between 3 and 4% on average. Applied tariffs are even lower. So I think it's applied tariffs around 2% for the average good uh, imported. And uh, so tariffs are relatively low. The market is open and contestable in almost every respect. And it's a wonderful place to invest. I mean, the investors are well protected. It's a great consumer market. So with all the criticisms that abound from the politicians, the United States is still deeply engaged with the world and a great place for Swedish companies or anybody else to make their fortune. No, I agree with you. I mean, this is a great place to invest. Uh, I think what companies need and want, we all want, is predictability. So I think the debate is worrying for a country like Sweden because, you know, we're 10 million people, a highly competitive country with fantastic companies. We're the 13th largest investor in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we're big and we're not exactly population-wise the 13th largest country in the world. So we we have great companies and, you know, we create 365,000 jobs here. But what companies need to know and what we need to do is that we will continue to do that. Mm -hmm. And from both sides, I would say, uh, protectionist rhetoric is not helpful. And also we believe that there's no turning back. All our companies are dependent on global value chains. So are American companies. And if companies are going to invest more here, we need to know that we can rely on those global value chains yes. and, you know, because this is a fantastic market. And of course, the United States has the luxury of basically being a continent. <laughs> uh, Sweden is not a continent. Right. Uh, okay, we are part of the European Union, which is comparable, of course, to the United States. But we really think that it's important that the United States and the European Union work together because we are each other's biggest markets. And if China is what we're worried about, if we join forces, for instance, on standards, etc., that's how uh, mm-hmm. we also get them in line. Simplified, of course. There sure. are so many more issues to it. But predictability is what we need. And uh, possibilities, like you say, it's still an open country. The, the political rhetoric is not the same. But right. We have a president who doesn't believe in predictability. He thinks it gives him more leverage if people don't know what's going to happen next, which is exactly the wrong signal for business. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's something that he believes in. I think President Biden would pursue some of the same policies, mm-hmm. frankly. But I think... The tone would be different Mm -hmm. and the the level of of certainty would be different. You make a very good point about working together with Europe. The Democrats have faulted this administration for not trying to do that. I have to say it's difficult because there's a number of areas where we have sharply different views Mm -hmm. and some ongoing disputes that have turned out to be very difficult to resolve. Boeing Airbus being the most obvious, Mm -hmm. very specific one. But uh, Europe is taking a lot of steps in in, uh, directions that are troubling for us. Mm -hmm. The digital service tax proposal, mm-hmm. the digital service act that you're considering, the EU's uh, policy on antitrust and competition is not only different from ours, but increasingly mm-hmm. different from ours and appears in, in our view to be aimed really at large American companies. So I think it's, it's getting more difficult mm-hmm. rather than easier. The good news is that you're probably going to escape that in the election because the election will be focused on China. You know, China is going to be the bad yeah. guy. Yeah. Europe is not going mm-hmm. to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. 
But the fact is, we've got a boatload of bilateral problems. Exactly. And, you, and you've got the commission mm-hmm. saying at various levels that probably it's, it's not the right time mm-hmm. to move forward on a broader trade mm-hmm. agreement. No, remember how we were actually not that far away. I mean, we were far away, but we had gotten quite far we anyway with the TTIP yes. discussions. And I, I was part of that in Brussels at the time. And of course, I know and we all know it's extremely hard to get those huge, big trade agreements across the finishing line because there are so many other factors that weigh in at the end. But I think we had a lot of elements in that agreement which we had worked on and sold. So I think it's very important that going forward that we look into what do we have, what's positive, what can we solve. And I'm not saying that the European Union is perfect in any way. Just like you say, this is things that are worrying for you on the other side of the Atlantic. And uh, in, as Sweden, we are you know, one of the biggest proponents of free trade within the Union. Uh, but we are feeling a bit that we are having an uphill battle. How do we get Sweden to have more influence? Well, yeah, exactly. Maybe we should grow our population by I don't know how many millions. <laughs> well, you, one thing that you may consider is mm-hmm. a stock taking. Because look, the Transatlantic Trade yeah. and Investment Partnership was launched 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's been a decade, a lot of polite information sharing, not much progress. Oddly, uh, while President Trump came into office and gleefully fulfilled a campaign promise of killing the Trans-Pacific Partnership in its crib and was happy about that, nobody ever talked about TTIP. In fact, it's still an operating project Mm. for practical purposes Mm. within both the United States and Europe. So for some reason, we're not getting anywhere. Mm. And, And this may be a good time to say, where do we really need to get someone? Yeah. And, and I understand yeah, we I get really stuck agree. on old issues like agriculture yes. and new issues like technology. Mm. But there are some issues where if we were playing as a team, mm. uh, it would be better for the world and better for the challenge that, say, China presents. Yes, and then together we are, what is it, 850 million right. people. And I do agree with you. We should look into what we have. What can we go forward with? Agriculture is... A non-starter. Public procurement on this side is probably Don't a non-starter. Don't get Bill started on chicken. That's all no, I can say. I was just going to say, is this my chance to talk about chickens? And we talked about more. earlier the chicken nuggets yes, right. <laughs> and COVID. But no, but I, I really agree with you. And this is very important that we send this message that we must cooperate. Yes. Because we see the same challenges, for instance, when it comes to China and mm, other actors. Yes. And, but if we do agree, and, and, and this sounds so simplified because... Of course, it's not in reality. These are very technical issues, but we really must work together. And yes. so these tariffs that come out uh, have come out on national security reasons on steel and aluminum, not helpful. Mm-hmm. Other things like that. We could clean the table when it comes to Airbus and Boeing. And that has been suggested from the EU side. So I think there are things we can do. Well, that may move now, mm-hmm. now that the Europeans have their number, mm-hmm. the amount they can mm-hmm. retaliate. I think that uh, the U.S. view on that was that their number was going to be a lot smaller than ours. Mm. Uh, It turned out to be about half ours, a little more than half ours. I think that will probably lead to a negotiation. Mm. The problem will be, frankly, that they have to first agree on what they're going to negotiate. Uh, I think the the EU view is going to be, well, you know, we got caught uh, and we promised not to do it anymore. uh, And this time we mean it, as opposed (laughs) to the last four times when we didn't mean it. I think the American view is going to be, well, that's all very well and good, but you have to pay. Yeah. You know, you've sinned and you have to pay for your sins. Well, now there's an offset, though, because there was a fine well, against the U.S. We, we're um, all sinners. We're, and so everyone's a sinner. Yes. My experience negotiating is if, if, if it ends up being about a number, you know, we say you owe us $10 billion and you say you owe us nothing, there's probably some number in the middle that we can agree five. on. Yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. not five, but some Something number that we can agree we, on. We can get there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, when when I, you start talking about rules and standards, yeah. then it gets very complicated. Mm-hmm. Numbers are easy. So we may be able to get there. Mm. 
No, and I think we can cooperate on the WTO. I yes. know it's been difficult here, and we have also concerns about a lot of the multilateral organizations that we need to reform them. But it's when the United States decides that we mm-hmm. should reform them that we actually get it going. Now, that so, will be a change. If, mm-hmm. if Biden wins, yes. I mean, to me, the biggest difference between the two candidates in this area is, is Trump is a dyed-in-the-wool unilateralist. Yes. He believes mm-hmm. in the unilateral exercise of American power. He doesn't believe in teams. Mm. He doesn't believe in coalitions. He doesn't believe in multilateral agreements. He likes bilateral agreements. Uh, Biden is exactly the opposite. His whole life has been focused on multilateralism, working within institutions, working with coalitions. Mm. One of his criticisms, actually all the Democratic candidates' criticisms of this administration was they don't build coalitions. Mm. They don't work with others. And as Scott said, we have a common competitive challenge in China. Uh, and exactly. we will have, a, in a way, a bigger one with India down the road. Yes. There's a lot of reasons why we should be working together. Now, when we do decide to work together, it will be in a very different world mm. than we were in nine months ago. And the pandemic has changed a lot of things. It's changed a lot of the way we work. The estimate was about 5% of Americans worked from home before the pandemic. The peak during the pandemic was 46%. But the uh, researchers at Stanford University predict that the going rate post pandemic will be 20%. So we're not going to reset down. We've accelerated adoption of certain technologies. We have strained every possible supply chain because of the rapid changes in demand. We're just getting through this, but I'm a believer that our economy will look different and we'll have to behave differently about how we set priorities. Uh, and we're shortening supply chains. Can maybe yes. say a few words about that. Well, that's this one of the started things. started before, before COVID, but it's there's a, there's a fascinating trend, uh, and the trend is away from sort of long-haul globalization, uh, assemble it at a, in a distant market, which is basically a labor cost arbitrage play, and more toward regional supply chains, mostly because of the success of globalization. Globalization succeeded by creating customers everywhere, which is now there's a very large middle class in what we used to characterize as producing markets, say in Southeast Asia. There are consumers there as well. And so what we're finding is more supply chains are regional rather than global in nature. There's sort of factory North America, which is the NAFTA or USMCA countries. There's factory Europe, which is the EU plus the partnership agreements that wind up making things together and selling things to each other. Okay, and the same thing is emerging now in Asia because of the, the increasing size of the millennial consumer markets that are available in India and China and elsewhere. So the supply chains are regionalizing. That's, that's a change we're going to have to cope with. It's probably a good one. It, it, companies want to be more responsive to the final consumer demand. Being close to the consumer helps that. But also, uh, as uh, labor costs go up in a place like China, it's easier to change the calculation and find other ways to, to operate your chains. So. I agree with you. I really think this will probably lead to a change. And maybe 3D printing will really come out yes. and uh, yes. new technologies. Yes. And also, it could also be good for climate because, of course, yes. all the transportation of goods is harmful. But it's important that we don't cut those global value chains off, that we still keep them because there's no way that we can produce things that people can afford, actually. Yeah, autarky <laughs> makes things worse. It makes things yeah. much more expensive. Mm. And so if you want to make everything in America... Mm. It's theoretically possible, but there would be major resistance on the part of both consumers and producers uh, because of the cost associated with with such a move. We work with uh, Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx Express, the creator of the company. Mm -hmm. And he always points out the average American family of four saves over $1,000 a year because of global trade, Mm -hmm. because of these value chains. And that adds value to their life. It's income that their spending power is magnified because Mm -hmm. of it. 
and uh, nobody wants to give that back, mm. nor should they, nope. because it's best that we cooperate mm. and, and work on making mm. things together. Mm. One of the things that intrigued me the other day, I was looking at, at surveys, and it turns out that Sweden is one of the top 10 innovative countries, mm -hmm. which I didn't know. We're top five, basically everything. <laughs> this particular survey was partly based on size, because the big ones were China, you know, in Europe, Germany, and France. But the, the, the bottom line is, in, as far as uh, technological mm -hmm. development and innovation, you're, you're playing above your size. Absolutely. At the same time, I think one of the things to worry about for uh, Swedish businessmen to worry about is what Scott referred to, which is one of the themes of this election is going to be Buy American. Mm -hmm. And at one level, it's about federal procurement, which, I mean, the EU gets very excited about, about government procurement here. But the reality is, it's not a big part of our economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the federal level, 96% of our procurement is already domestic anyway. Uh, and of the remaining 4%, half of that is offshore purchases for offshore use, like our embassy in Stockholm. You know, they don't go to Safeway to buy their food. They go to, you know, it, <laughs> hopefully, right, it's local. But the debate is expanding to talk about reshoring. And both candidates are saying it's time for American companies to come home, to come back. Scott's talked about why that's a mistake, but uh, it's a challenge, I think, for, for foreign companies. Absolutely. It really is. Okay, we already have a lot of companies invested in the United States. And as we've talked about earlier, this is the market. So you want to have presence here. You want to produce here. You want to sell to the American public. But of course, given that we act on a global scale, uh, the Swedish companies cannot just you know, move here and forget everything else. It is interlinked. So... Of course, we are also looking for investments in our country to outgrow our economy. And we are as open as we can be to attract companies to Sweden. So, for instance, we have lots of American investments in Sweden, which, of course, benefit uh, from our workforce and, as you said, our in innovative power and so on. So I really hope that this will not go too far. Well, look, um, reshoring is a popular theme for the politicians. Yes. But when you look at it in the context of the COVID crisis, they're actually solving the wrong problem. The problems were demand-side problems, panic buying of, of medical equipment, uh, instant demand where it wasn't there the week before. They, they weren't per se supply problems, okay? The supply chain had to figure out how to adapt, but many of these problems were, were created by policies on the demand side, and as soon as demand returns to something like normal, they're going to go away, and reshoring won't be a solution to any particular problem. No, and for instance, what we saw in healthcare, Minister Halberg, that we just saw, she has launched a program called uh, Trade for Health, where we should really reduce the barriers for health-related products, medicines, and so on, to really be able to stock ourselves up fairly quickly. Because we need to do some stockpiling, probably, that's what will come out of this, yeah. but we also need to be able to quickly... You need, you need a system that's resilient. Yeah. yeah. But you've got to start with the fact that nobody makes everything. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of countries don't make anything in this sector. So it's, you've got to manage it carefully and make sure you're, you're addressing the genuine needs. But the problem here is that this is all framed in the, in the context of national security. Yes. We have to make it here because it's critical to our security to have it here. And the definition of what is national security is becoming very elastic. It gets mm. bigger and bigger and bigger. My favorite story was when a Chinese company, Shuangwei, bought Smithfield, the, mm -hmm. the pork company. We had senators arguing basically that bacon was a national security item and needed to be protected. That didn't win. They didn't prevail. The, the company was sold. But you can see it's not very hard to say, well, food is mm -hmm. national security. Personal protective equipment is national security. Pharmaceuticals are national security. And the universe of stuff you have to protect yeah. 
gets bigger and bigger and bigger with all the consequences that Scott was talking about but earlier. But there are some there are some genuine national security components in our relationship with China. Mm -hmm. We may want to go there just as we wrap up. I, I think that's an important dimension that faces both Europe mm -hmm. and the innovative companies in Europe and countries in Europe, as well as the United States. I think we need to look at China both as an opportunity, of course yes. it is, and a challenge. So, for instance, we have to look at, in the European Union, we are looking at market access and such things. At the same time, when it comes to challenges, we are all taking much more seriously investment screening and so on. But I think we have to do both because, of course, the Chinese people and China is very important for all of us, and uh, both when it comes to opportunities and, and challenges. So. I think it's important we do both and not see everything as a national security issue yes, because our, then we will hurt ourselves. Our friend Joyce Chang, who heads research at J.P. Yeah. Morgan, calls it coopetition. We're going to cooperate some places and we word. compete other yes, places. I like so. that word. All I can say is I offend all my European friends when I say this, and I'm about to offend the Swedish-American Chamber of Commerce. This is Bill, not Scott. For those of you listening. You, you, guys, you guys are two or three years behind us in understanding China. Mm. It is a much bigger problem than you think, mm. and it is more of an existential problem than you think. But even more important that we cooperate problem. then. Well, yes, yes, yes. I think we come out yes. in the same place, yes. but we, we look at the country differently. And from my perspective, it's not because of something that's strange going on here, although there's plenty of strange things going on here. The Chinese government has been moving backward mm. in its policies. More state control, yeah. more state-owned enterprises, they haven't done uh, enough about IP theft, but they're also engaging in human rights policies that are pose real challenges Absolutely. for us with Absolutely. Hong Kong, with the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. They're pursuing very aggressive actions mm -hmm. in the South China Sea, claiming space that is claimed by seven or eight other countries at the same time. Uh, it's a very aggressive position. And I mean, the United States is a Pacific power. We have a lot of stakes there that mm -hmm. uh, most European countries don't have. But the, the economic challenge is really big and getting bigger. You know, we've tapped some rich veins here today. And I think what this calls for is another appearance by the ambassador and the trade guys. You'll you become an honorary trade guy. You called me the coolest ambassador in the Washington Which we when stand I was, by. Yes, because we, we had the coolest companies. We, we definitely stand by that claim. But we thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you so and much. And thanks to the association for allowing us to be part of your program. And we welcome the opportunity to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for having it's a pleasure. me. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.